Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. So glad that you are here today. Part four of a series called Stuff Your Significant Other Needs to Hear. It's the concluding uh, talk or part of this thing. If you've missed the first three, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks, and find them all there. But basically, the concept of the series has been there are things in life that you've come across, that you've read a book, you've attended a message at a church or, a, or listened to a podcast, and you thought, ooh, somebody else needs to hear this, not named me. Uh, and unfortunately, they just don't come across it naturally, um, and you try and put it in their way and try and you know, get them to read this or do this. Or, but every time you front the information, anytime you say, hey, this is worth reading, child of mine, um, they never do. And even if they did, they, wouldn't, they would hear it but not listen to it. We talked about that last week. So there, there's all kinds of things going on with that. And so we said, uh, there's a little bit of irony in this as well, because you're the one that's here, and perhaps, perhaps... Uh, we have a little bit of growth in these areas. Perhaps these things that we kind of project onto others are actually areas of growth uh, that we need to grow with uh, as well. So uh, part four of that, um, and I, I did want to try and define significant other for us because especially in today's talk, I, I want to be very, very clear. It's simply relationships that you fe- uh, feel are worth having and are worth it, like worth doing. So obviously, hopefully marriage for you is like the obvious choice, um, but parent-child relationship, especially parent-teenager relationship, um, that's the, this is areas that, that we wish that they would hear some things from other people and kind of adjust their lives accordingly. Uh, but maybe it's just a friendship that, uh, I know you have very varying levels of friends, right? Um, you have friends who, if they called and said, hey, we're no longer friends, you'd be like, fine, I don't care, fine, whatever, hang up. Uh, and then there are people, people who it would be kind of an issue. My, my mother-in-law has a group of what they call wagon friends. These are friends that we're doing the trail of life together. And if ever anybody is in danger or whatever, we circle the wagons and there's like a protection thing. And this is kind of a long haul, long-term sort of friendship type deal. Anyways, um, that, those are the kind of friendships that we're talking about. Those are the kind of significant others uh, that perhaps we can kind of weed this thing through or, or um, weave the idea through it. So anyways, uh, so today I want to start us off with a quote or a thought, um, a comment that I received from my parents growing up uh, over and over and over again. I'm going to phrase it in one way, although it would show up at different levels um, to, based on kind of where I was at age-wise and intellectual-wise and, and what I could kind of perceive and understand. But the basic concept is this, that who you choose to surround yourself with matters. I can vividly remember my parents being like, Brent, listen, who you choose to surround yourself with matters. Be very careful the friends that you choose to keep. You become like those you're around. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You become like the five closest friends that you have. Whatever phrase it was, I imagine I'm not the only person in the room. So we're gonna do a little social experience to kick this thing off. By a show of hands, in just a second, I'll give you a chance to prepare for this. If your parents... If you can vividly remember your parents saying something like this to you about your friends and about being careful about your choice of friends, I would love for you quickly just to raise a hand. I don't do this, don't do this a lot. Say, look, okay, there's some decent number of hands, probably 25%. For those of you with your hands down, you know what this says about you, right? You are the friends that my parents warned me about. Um, so we're not supposed to be, fr- I, like, I don't know. I'm at the age where I can kind of decide for myself. But I, that, that's, a, that's a significant thing because here's what my parents knew. My parents knew uh, that I, I'm very malleable at that age. I'm very, like, moldable. I, can, I, I become, like, what's around me. Whether, and we do it a couple of different ways. In fact, um, uh, tonight I'm taking our, we, we have a thing called, we call Base Camp, which is like a four-week course that we just started to kind of train each other and help each other learn what it means to wear love in our environments. And so I'm in a group of people who are doing that tonight. And uh, the material has to do with habits, 
uh, and motives. And we're, um, the material was based on a book called uh, Atomic Habits by a guy named James, James Clear. And in it, he says that we have this thing when it comes to habits where we imitate the habits of three groups in particular to us, those who are close, uh, the many, or sorry, the close, the many, and the powerful. We imitate the close, the many, and the powerful when it comes to how we live our life and what kind of habits kind of begin to define us. So uh, the, the one that's most important is the one people that are close, but I'm gonna work backwards and kind of explain this very, very quickly. We imitate those who are considered to be powerful for us. And that's not just like political powerful, and but like people whose status is greater than ours, who have something that we want. We envy them or we admire them because they live this sort of life, whether it's this image they they project on Instagram or the job title that they have or how many letters come after their name, whatever, we imitate them because of kind of where they are in life, right? We buy Joanna Gaines's whatevers because we've always wanted to live in a farmhouse. That's why we buy her whatevers. What's funny about that is we didn't know we wanted to live in a farmhouse until she told us that we wanted to live in a farmhouse. And now we're like, well, now we gotta do all the things because we wanna look like Joanna. Uh, We are also motivated to avoid behaviors that would lower our status. If they have that kind of status, I don't wanna do anything that doesn't match if what they would do, if they were me, would they do this? And so uh, we trim our hedges and mow our lawns because we don't want to be the slob of the neighborhood. We, when our mother-in-law comes to town, we clean up the house because we don't want to be judged. We are continually wondering what will others think of me, specifically in that category of others. What will people who are in positions of where I want to be, what will they think of me? And then we alter our behavior based on that answer. So just an evaluation of life. This is not like, uh, I don't know what you think about this. And this isn't even biblical. This is just like observations of life. Right. All right. Number two, uh, we imitate the habits of the many, um, and this just means that whenever we're unsure how to act, uh, we look to the group to guide our behavior. We're constantly scanning the environment that surrounds us and wondering what is everybody else doing, what's everybody else into, who does everybody else like, what does everybody else think of Game of Thrones season eight, what does everybody else think of in, in game? That's what I think too. That's what I think too. I mean, me too. We scan reviews of Amazon. We use phrases when it comes to Yelp, like, "Well, Yelp said this was really great, so therefore, if we like it, kudos to me for finding this on Yelp, and if we don't like." It, we're all on board with saying, well, that's crazy. Yelp's, Yelp's the problem, not me, right? So that's, that's kind of the process with this. And the problem with it is that there are days where we'd rather be wrong with the crowd than be right, than be right by ourselves. We'd rather be wrong with the crowd than right by ourselves. And so therefore, we know that our proximity to the many, our proximity in relation to a crowd, we will do things in a crowd mentality we would never do on an individual level. And then finally, uh, the close. And this is the uh, important one, right? We pick up the habits from the people around us who are closest in proximity um, to us. We copy the way our parents handled arguments or we've, we started saying things. And after we say them, we're like, my dad says that. What are, we, what are we, heating the outdoors? Close that door, right? And I'm like, oh, that was my dad. What am I doing? Um, we copy the way our peers flirt with one another. We copy the way our coworkers get results. My, uh, my, uh, my guess is that the first time that you smoked or drank that whatever, you probably weren't alone, were you? You don't do that kind of stuff in isolation typically. And we oftentimes, here's the problem with it. We often do it. We often copy and, and shape our behaviors based on the, the close proximity of others without even realizing it. 
The owner of this building has two Hispanic guys that work for him. They come and they do all the repairs and they, do, they collect all the checks and do all the stuff, Jesse and Ramon. And my wife can tell when I have been on the phone or meeting recently with Jesse and Ramon, and she's a psychology, like she did the whole psychology undergraduate, whatever. So um, she, can, she, she knows that she calls it either mirroring or projection or whatever, where I tend to, um, she can tell when I've, I've been talking to them because my accent shifts in that way. Like I'm... I'm trying to, and I don't do it intentionally. I'm not like trying to get something out of them. They have no, I'm not manipulating. They don't have power where I need something from them. It's just like, that's how they do things. So that's how I did. She can tell when I've been on the, best, my, on the phone with my best friend, Ryan, um, because we have this little stupid little language thing that we do. She's like, you've been on the phone with Ryan. Yeah, how'd you know? Because you're acting like you're 15 again, right? So that's... <laughs> That's definitely, we, we understand, like we get it. We're, when it's close, we do it. And we may not even do it within, without even realizing it. And generally, the closer that we are to someone, the more likely we are to imitate some of their habits. In this book, it says this, that one study found that the higher your best friend's IQ at age 11 or 12, the higher your IQ would be at age 15. The higher your best friend's IQ at 11 or 12, the higher your IQ would be at 15 when they did just an objectional, sorry, objective kind of survey of all of this kind of stuff. This is crazy. And then, and I'm gonna read this um, because it says this, even after controlling for natural levels of intelligence. Listen, I don't know what that last part means. And I think it's because my best friend wasn't smart enough at 11 or 12 (laughs) to get that. So I don't know what it means. I can't even interpret it for you. But um, if, if Ryan was smarter, perhaps I'd be able to explain that for you. But it, he, he wasn't, so it's his fault. Um, who you choose to surround yourself with absolutely uh, matters. So um, I want to talk to you and show you in one of my favorite movies um, how this plays out and why I think this is critical and why this can go one way or another. And I think it can be a positive thing uh, as well. There's a movie that came out in 1996, 97 called Goodwill Hunting. It's a, it's a must watch for me. It's a top five. It's one that I watch uh, uh, probably once a year. We own it on DVD. If it's, if it's ever on TV, I never change the channel. I just let it go and be like, well, this is what we're doing now for the next hour and a half. I'm sorry that you changed the channel to this. Now we can't leave. Uh, anyways, um, in it, there's a scene and a quote that just speaks so much volume to this. It's amazing. Um, the scene is that uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, that's not their names in the movie, but you know what I mean. They're on, the, on a construction site. They're just getting off of work. They're ha- having a beer, and they're talking about themselves and kind of future and what life's going to look like. Um, and so I'm going to read through part of the script right here. Now, it's a rated R movie, and we typically have an incredibly low bar for what we feel comfortable showing on a Sunday. If you've been to Eastlake before and seen our transition videos, you're like, yeah, it's the lowest bar I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> However, there is still some things that are underneath the bar that don't make it. Two Boston guys talking after work falls into that category. We thought, well, we could show the clip and we could just duck the words out. We use like this little duck that quacks every time something happens, but it was like, it sounded like you were down at Columbia Park and feeding the ducks is what it sounded like, and we just couldn't go with that. So I'm going to read it for you. And what I've done is two things. One, I've gone through and removed what I feel like are kind of unnecessary ones that don't really help, which could have probably been all of them, but whatever. Um, I've taken out ones that when I took it out, it didn't, it, you didn't miss much. And then the ones that I left in, I've replaced with words that are more family-friendly because we've got junior high, high school kids in the audience today. So in order to do that, I Googled up um, safe replacement curse words on Google. 
and I found a website called wehavekids.com, true story, where they said, hey, you're a parent with small kids. Instead of saying, you should probably say this. Now, I'm not gonna tell you when they show up in the script. I'm gonna let you try and figure it out and see if you can figure out where they come from. So this will be fun. You're gonna, we're gonna learn and we're gonna have fun together. You guys ready for that? Yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, Chucky is Ben Affleck's character. Will, for the record, is Matt Damon's character. It's just the two of them. They're sitting by their car, drinking a beer, talking after work. Look, this has been saying to Matt. Look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. In 20 years, if you're still living here, come on over to my house to watch the Patriots games, still working construction, I'll kill you. That's not a threat. That's a fact. I'll kill you. What the schnookerdookies are you talking about? <laughs> that's an easy one. I gave you that one. They get harder, but... What the schnickerdookies are you talking about? Look, you got something that none of us, oh, come on, why, it is, always, why is it always this? I mean, I fudge nuggets, oh, to, that was a careful one. I gotta be careful with that. Fudge nuggets, oh, it to myself to do this or that. What if I don't wanna do that? No, 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 no. No six and two is eight you. You don't owe it to yourself. That's another one. Uh, you owe it to me. Because tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'll be 50, and I'll still be doing this, Jimmy Stewart. And that's all right. That's fine. I mean, you're sitting on a winning lottery ticket, and you're too much of a nope to cash it in. And that's sugar, because I'd do anything to have what you got. So would any of these guys. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. Hanging around here is a waste of your time. You don't know that. I don't know. You don't know that. Oh, I don't know that. And this is, guys, all right, that's all fun and games to set this part up, because this is the... <laughs> this is the emotional, this is why Brent watches this movie every year. Oh, I don't know that. Let me tell you what I do know. Every day I come by to pick you up and we go out to have a few drinks and a few laughs and it's great. But you know what the best part of my day is? It's for about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb to when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing, just left. I don't know much, but I do know that. Spoiler alert, because I feel like I can tell you the movie's like 20-something years old. One day at the end of the movie, the, very, the movie ends with him going up to the front door, knocking on the door, and Will's gone. And he's gone because he realizes, I can't throw away this golden opportunity. He had a friend who wanted the best for him, who didn't try and drag him down to their level of, who, what, do you think you're better than me? Who didn't try to, I know he's smarter than me, but we work the same job, and we make him the same amount of money, so that speaks better of me. He didn't operate in a selfish way. And I know it's fictional. I know it was written in, all that kind of stuff. I get it. I understand. But in that moment, what it illustrates is the value of a friend who wants the best for you, regardless of their personal benefits that may or may not come to them. I, he's, he's basically like, I would rather have you go live that life and have it not be a part of mine because I don't want you to waste your life here in Boston working the construction job. It's fine for me, and I, can't, I won't complain, but for you, there, you, you deserve something better. You, there's, something, there's too much potential there. Don't waste it in this way. And you, you watch that, and you're like, oh, dude, I want people in my life who want the best for me. I wanna be, be the type of person, guys, I wanna be the type of pastor that wants the best for you, even if it may not be continuing to attend East Lake and living in the Tri-Cities. 
I want that for my daughter. I love the Tri-Cities. I want her to feel like this is home and maybe this is where her future lies. I have no idea, but I want the best for her, even if it means moving far, far away and my wife will cry herself to sleep every single night because she's so far away from her daughter, right? All this kind of stuff. I want what's best for her. You want what's best for your kids. We get this. This is understandable. And every once in a while, we get a chance to be friends with or have friends who are like that for us. For the last 12 years, I've gotten together with a group of about eight to 10, depending on who can make it this every year, guys for a weekend, one weekend a year, and we call it Blistacalanza, which is a combination of bliss and fantastic and and, um, extravaganza. It's stupid. It's fine. It's great. It's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Bliss One took place, I don't know, do the math, 2007, um, something like that. And uh, in that very first one, about half of us were married, and I don't think any of us had any kids. And our very first one, it was all competitive games. It was, let's get together, let's play all of these stupid, dumb games, and we had, we, this is a very true story, and it's very illuminating on how shallow and competitive we are. We built a stand that's like looks like a metal stand, so like third place, second place, first place. And when you won one of the events, um, at the next morning we would do an award ceremony. We would we would wake up to the Olympics theme song, and then you would stand up in front, and we had medals, and the medals were made out of um, yogurt can tops. And I'm not lying. And then one year we actually bought real medals, um, and we would do so many stupid activities. We would do um, uh, dunk hoops, basketball, uh, we home run derby, um, ticket to ride tournament thing. We did a BB gun shootout, and one guy thought there's a school like right around the corner. We went and did a BB gun shootout at a school, which now is ridiculous. We understand that. It was 2007. We didn't know what we were doing. The school wasn't going on. It was a Saturday, but still very arrestable. Uh, and uh, so all of that, and then every year we've gotten together and done the same thing. Now we've gotten older. We have, you know, all of us are married. All of us have kids at this point. Um, and, um, our bodies are no longer in their twenties. They're more like in their thirties and even for one guy in their forties, <laughs> he's an oldie. Uh, and so now the activities have lessened, right? So like, uh, this, we were up in Wenatchee for this one, this last weekend, uh, Friday, we sat on the couch and watched PGA Championship pretty much all day and cooked steaks and burgers and drank beer and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, that was, it's that, it's kind of where it's at. But Friday night, uh, Thursday, we got up there. Thursday, we caught up on life with each other. And then Friday night, we, uh, we uh, all got, there was a hot tub. We rented a house that had a hot tub and we all got in the hot tub. Eight dudes, four person hot tub. <laughs> very friendly. All right, very friendly. We're in there, and the conversation starts going, and we begin, one, one of the guys, we get, like, some of them get, like, sentimental, which is kind of weird, right? And you're like, okay, right? So, uh, and, and then they ask the question, what do you want next year? What do you want to be different about your life at next year's bliss than it is this year? A goal, something you're going for, something you've been working on, maybe a relationship thing. What, what's, what's, what do you want for next year? What can I be not to like spiritualize it, but what can I be praying about for you or um, what can I be cheering you on for, right? And some sort of accountability idea. So one of the guys said, uh, well, he's got this business that he's starting that they're in like the early stages and he wants to make it self-sustainable. He wants to be able to quit some of his other jobs, part-time stuff so he can focus uh, full-time on this, which is great. Um, 
Uh, one of them was uh, we want to we're having another kid, so we want to sell our current house and buy a new house so that everybody has a room. We need to expand. Uh, one of them had started writing a novel, and uh, then kids started showing up, and then that um, put everything on hold in that way. So he's like, now the kids are a certain age, and I've got a little bit more free time, and it's just hard to get back into it. It's hard to like it's, if you've ever gotten out of school and then tried to go back into school, like all that kind of stuff. Like there's just I need a little motivation, so if, if, if this could be it, um, that, that's great. One of them, his parents uh, were separating. We didn't, we didn't know that um, going into the, the weekend, or I didn't know that at least. Um, and parents are living in two different spots, and now they're, so they're, he's trying to figure out what this new life looks like. These parents uh, had 38 years um, together, and then all of a sudden one of them goes, this isn't enough for me. I want something more than this. And how do you deal with that as a kid watching your parents, who you've idolized your entire life, all of a sudden make these very, in his mind, self-destructive decisions that are completely um, self-centered and, and wrong, right? Uh, one mentioned he's got a dad who's been uh, ailing and, and not doing well, and the relationship has been rocky. And I don't know it feels like I'm airing their dirty laundry. I'm just trying to tell you the vulnerability at which uh, we got, because you don't get there um, over a phone call, typically, and you don't, you probably, and I, I don't, maybe, maybe you have more relationships than I do. I don't have that kind of vulnerability uh, with that many people, all right? Um, that's pretty few and far between. And it only shows up when you genuinely believe that they want the best for you. The reason that we're able to talk in that way, the reason that we're able to have the transparency that we have is because we know, we trust that these guys are for us and that they would never air their dirty laundry to their church the next day. That's what they know. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Um, that's the, 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 the huge thing. And it, we, I mean, that conversation, guys, lasted for probably, I don't know, 60 minutes. The water got cold. You know what I mean? Like the, first, it spilled out because there's eight dudes in the hot tub. And then it just got cold. And then some guy started making bubbles in the corner. And we had to get out and leave. But it didn't end well. But it was going incredibly well. And it was for a moment, a brief moment, one of the few periods of my year um, where I am surrounded by people who I have trusted because of their longevity and the consistency over the years. And the reason that we prioritize, the reason that we spend money, the reason that we pull away from our own families is because we value that so much. And I wanna be around people who want the best for me, who want nothing from me other than tell me how I can help or tell me what you're excited about for the next year. Uh, there's a verse that talks about this in the book of Hebrews. It's a book that is primarily about the greatness of Jesus. Um, and one that really highlights the fact that he, he wasn't a, like a really good person, a really good teacher. He is literally the high priest. He is literally the lamb of God, the sacrifice. The weed, all of this stuff that was carried in from this old way of doing religion has now found its foundation through Christ and then how do we then live our lives in response to that? And here's one of the implications for this high level of what they would call Christology or the view of Christ. When you hold Christ in, high, in this high of esteem and that is the commonality that you share between your brothers and sisters in the church, then this is what you do and this is how you live your life. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Which Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And we have been on, we say this all the time, that we are a community um, who is committed to figuring out and following the way of Jesus. And it feels like for us, the way that he has done it is to push us towards discovering what it means to wear love in whatever arena and season of life that we're in. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It doesn't mean coming and getting a little stamp at church on Sunday that says, you know, gold star that you came, uh, that you gave, that you served, that you did this. It's, I want to know, what do I got to do? Help me, help me. Uh, I, I come weekly to encourage my, myself, to inspire me to be more, uh, to, more thinking towards wearing love and, and more aware of it and, and accountability towards this and uh, evaluation of my own selfishness and sinfulness so that I can be moved towards this. So our time together is to spur one another on towards loving good deeds. And we, we're familiar with spurs. We understand, uh, you know, we don't even have to own a horse. I don't own a horse to, to know what spurs are, right? And, and, and this idea of guiding us towards this. I was trying to imagine, like, trying to come up with some sort of a metaphor or an analogy to kind of help illustrate this. And the best thing that I could come up with was if you've been to the fair, you ever gone to that spot where the kids, the 4-H kids are showing their goats and their sheep and their pigs and whatever, and they're trying to um, guide their animal either to the pen where they show them or to the shower to go wash them off. And they're, they're hauling them through and they've got these big backer boards and they're just sitting there and they got these canes and it looks like they're just abusing their animals, but they're guiding them, right? Towards something that's good. You wanna go here, there's food here. This is the reason that we're here, stupid pig, is to be shown and, and then we're gonna sell you and you're gonna eat, it doesn't matter. But here's, this is why we're here and they're trying and with all of their force and all of their might, it's so funny to watch these like, three, you know, third grade girls trying with all these big boards with an animal that weighs probably four times what they weigh and they're guiding them into this thing. They're, they're, they're provoking them towards some sort of a goal. Here's where the food's at, here's where the water's at, something in this way. We're doing our best to make this. This recommendation from this pastor to his church, which is probably what Hebrews exactly was, again, kind of like James from last week, a pastor to his church saying, look at, let's not lose sight of how incredible Jesus is. Do what you can to provoke one another towards love and good deeds before one another. Make sure that they know that you are for them. Be, ha, be the type of person that wants something for them, not something from them. And it shows up in a big way when it comes to these marriage relationships, really any significant other sort of relationships. Listen, the last stuff your significant other needs to hear doesn't come from a guy like me. The last thing that I want your significant other to hear is not a message from Brent with three points and here's some application stuff. It's from you. And they need to hear that you are for them. The last thing they need to hear, well, probably not the last thing, but the last thing I'm gonna talk about is that you are for them. There have been multiple times in our marriage relationship with my wife and I, we're on year 13 or 14, we're coming up on 14 um, in June. 
there have been multiple times where I have felt her sort of push back or she's been saying some things that I, that, you know, we're, we're two lives trying to make this thing work together, right? And there's, and, and she's trying to guide me and provoke me with those like the, like the cane, the stick, guys, the 4-H person, guide me into this thing, trying to make me a better husband and make me a better dad, make me a better thing or whatever. And I get frustrated and, and multiple times, she has gone to me and she said, you can't speak to the kids like that. Like, that's, listen, that's not the kind of dad that you wanna be. You, resulted, you resorted quickly to anger. You did not like linger in mercy. You, you, you quickly responded because they frustrated you. And I know that that's not you. So let me, let me say that, let me say very aggressively, you can't live like that. You can't do that in this home, right? Well, you're setting up rules, right? We're doing whatever. Or, or when it comes to money or vacations or all the things that couples fight about. Like, I'm not gonna allow uh, you to be able to spend money like that because it builds this, like, this sense of this idle stuff in, in, in money. And I wanna, we wanna be generous, not like hoarding everything. We're not gonna hoard everything. We're gonna, we're gonna be generous with this because this is what we care about. This is what you said you wanted. This is what you said you wanted when, when we discuss what our families are gonna look like and the type of things that we, that we said we wanna be committed to this. And every once in a while, it doesn't feel like she's for me. It feels like we're kind of like going at it against each other. And so whenever she puts up these boundaries and these things and these whatevers, it doesn't feel like she's guiding me and spurring me on towards becoming better. It feels like she's prohibiting me from something that sounds fun. <laughs> so every once in a while, she'll go, look, stop, look it. Don't forget, I am for you. I'm for us. In fact, the reason that I'm doing this and saying this and stopping this and preventing this is because I'm for you. And you need to hear that from me. Because you could say, well, yeah, but we, you know, we, we, we know that, I know that. Yeah, but when was the last time you said that? Listen, when it comes to our kids, my kid right now, Clive, he's a year and a half, he has this tendency to grab the, uh, the plugs for our iPhones, right? The little Thunderbolt, the little thin one, right? And he walks around with it and he runs it around and he swings it. And then every once in a while, when he's around the corner by himself, I can see him going for the little, little smiley face in the wall. You know what that is? The little electrical socket and trying to put this thing in here. And I have to run around there and grab him and stop him. And I'm sure he feels like I am robbing him from pure joy. <laughs> and we all know, we all know what I'm trying to do is actually save him, but it doesn't feel like that to him. Now it doesn't work because I can't be like, Clive, I'm for you. He'd be like, you know, you're just stealing my stuff. You don't get it. But every once in a while, in the purpose of marriage, I, my goal is to try and help Kylie become more like Jesus and reciprocating that for me, that's what we want. And so I know that when she puts these boundaries up, when she puts these things up, when there are standards in relationships, when there are, we're not gonna cross this line, we're not gonna do this, this is gonna be, this is what we wanted. I'm, there's there's a, a gentle reminder that needs to come every once in a while that I am for you. Parents with your kids, you're gonna have lots of boundaries. You're gonna have lots of things you're trying to protect your kid from because you're an adult, your brain is fully cooked, right? Theirs isn't. They, 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 have the, they literally have a physical inability to see the consequence of the actions beyond the day, that day. And so you're trying to be like, hey, listen, I know a little bit more than you do. So let, let me tell you, be careful who you pick for friends because you become like the people that you're most around. Oh, mom, you're just trying to stifle my friends. No, listen, I'm for you. And maybe I haven't told you that enough, but that is is what motivates the advice that I give. Have you ever worked with somebody you knew was for you? 
You ever had a teacher that was definitely for you? They may not have been the nicest teacher. They may not have had the, the, the most lax rules. Their classroom was probably actually very strict, but they were for you. And later on in life, you realized how valuable that was. And maybe they didn't have the right environment. Maybe there was no oversized hot tub for them to be able to say, listen, I'm for you. Let's talk about this kind of stuff. And maybe that is what is so needed right now in your relationship and my relationship as we kind of evaluate our stuff to the people who we're closest to, whose habits are gonna be imitated by us, who we have the ability to shape, who we at one point stood in front of a group of people that we invited to a ceremony with a pastor dressed up real nice and he said, do you do? And I do, and I do, and I do. And we made these promises of future love to each other. And we said right then, I'm for you. But when was the last time that we really voiced those things? We, we have this, listen, it is a common human condition to crave being told and actually not just being told, but actually feeling like somebody is for you. You are willing to take their critique and bear their critique and understand that they are for this whole marriage. They're for this relationship. Therefore, I think that what they're doing is actually, even though it's painful, even though sometimes I feel like it's robbing joy from me, I get it and I understand it. Now listen, you may be in a relationship where genuinely feel, where you genuinely feel like the person that you're married to is no longer for you. Maybe at one point they were, or maybe you just feel like they never were. This was an entire joke the entire time. And now you're like, they're not for me. And I don't even know because it's been so long in this direction. If I was to take an honest evaluation of my thoughts towards them and feelings towards them, I don't know that I could honestly say that I'm for them either. I'm sort of for the image of keeping this thing together, but I don't know that I'm for them. And I want you to know that is a completely different series. That's a completely different topic. This is not a, we'll cheer up, let's try harder, let's go out this week and just be for them even though whatever. That's not what this is about. But my, because this can feel very utopian for some of those people who have been disillusioned with this idea in the past, right? This is for those of us who are in a relationship where if we were to ask, if we were to, if we were to have a conversation, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm generally for them. I'm like, I'm, I'm for us. But do they feel that? Do they know that within the core of their being? When you say it, do tears come to their eyes and they think, thanks, that all I needed to know was that you are. Now we can move forward with this. Because we kind of sometimes assume that they would know that or they should know that. We've been married for this many years. What, what's the problem if they don't understand it? Because you haven't said anything about it. You, do you? Are you really for them? If so, say that, but then begin to do the actions that match up with that as well. Maybe your kid needs to hear this week. Listen, kid, I'm for you. Just because now you have a curfew and I had to take the keys away from the car and I told you which friends you can't, we definitely can't hang out with him because that's, that's bad news. But I'm for you. And someday you'll appreciate it and someday you'll understand it. We crave so, we can understand 
so much of, or we can put ourselves uh, or survive, whatever, all kinds of circumstances if we truly come to grips with the fact that somebody is for us. And John, one of Jesus' disciples, knew this. So when John decided to write his gospel account of the teachings in the person of Jesus, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. It comes after the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And by the way, it's the last one written, and it was, there's a long gap in between. Why did he feel the obligation to say anything? What hadn't been said that needed to be said about Jesus? Well, one of the things that he definitely includes is a verse that you grew up probably knowing or seeing, and you didn't even grow up in church. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, he sent his son to die on a cross to forever answer the question, I wonder if God is for me. He's saying, you don't have to do anything. I'm not sitting there going, if you do enough, I'll pick you. If you're good enough, you'll make team God. He's like, let me settle this statement once and for all. Grace has been extended and offered to you. I am for you. We no longer have to wonder, I wonder if God is, if I'm doing enough. God would say, the, the, John would say, the, the presence of, the existence, the appearance of Jesus has forever settled that question. We no longer have to live wondering if God is for us. So on that note, I feel like it's an appropriate time to respond with communion, which is something that the church has been doing since the inception of the church. Um, across denominations and across the centuries, um, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples on the night before he was crucified, and he said to them, he broke this bread and said, this bread is representative of my body that's been broken for you, and this blood that has been shed for you is this represented by this wine, and do this in remembrance of me. So we have a team of people who are going to go. We're going to have a couple of stations up front. I'm going to invite the band. They're going to come up. They're going to play one last song for us, and we get a chance to do some personal reflection. You're invited to, but not obligated to by any means. Slip out at any point during the next song. Come up to the front participate in communion. There's gonna be um, uh, bread and wine on this side and uh, gluten-free bread and juice on this side. So whatever you know, dietary restrictions or age restrictions, figure it out for yourself. And as we do this, as we reenact this, like Jesus kind of commanded his disciples to do, we basically settle, or we, we, our prayer, our, our hope is that this would settle once and for all. I'm reminding myself that you're for me that when you put up guidelines, boundaries, expectations for me, it's because they're for my personal benefit because you're for me, not because you're trying to rob joy from me. Let me get this right on this level and then let me be the type of spouse, husband, wife, kid, parent, boss, employee in this level. Let me take the love that you've shown me and let me wear it out in my different arenas and my different seasons. See, that's the beauty of this thing. So, they're going to come up to the front. I'm going to have you stand. We're going to pray. And then we'll participate. Father, we 
May we be the type of people who can rest in the assurance that you're for us. May our communion time together, but not only that, just in our everyday life, may we, even this week, be constantly aware that you're not up there with a scorecard trying to grade us based on our behavior, but you're you're for us. You know, you've already settled that question for us. Forgive us for those times in our life where we've not felt that, where we've questioned that, doubted that, wrestled with that. It's fine that we we do, but um, this is so, it's been so clear um, that you've asked us to, to see this grace that's been extended to respond uh, appropriate level to the grace. And, and on, a, on a personal level, when it comes to the relationship level, uh, may we, um, having experienced that from you, then begin to extend that sort of grace and extend that sort of forgiveness and, ex- and extend that sort of love of being for our kids and for our spouse and for our friends and wanting the best for them, even if it comes at personal cost to us because that's the kind of people that we are, because not because we're awesome, but because you're awesome and you called us to do things in the way that you did them. And that's exactly what you did. So all we're doing is responding like you and following in the way of Jesus. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our individual lives and circumstances and the courage to act on it in your name, amen.